Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And I'm joined once again by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yurashami. We have a full show today. As constitutional lawyers, I think it's easy to take for granted the fact that most of our listeners are not lawyers. And so they may not understand some of the basics of constitutional law. So I plan on spending some time today on our show to discuss some basics, a constitutional law 101, as it were. But before doing so, we've been discussing the various tyrannical restrictions on liberty during this current COVID-19 pandemic and how left-wing government officials use or abuse science to do so. More recently, we discussed the vaccine. But there was an interesting and recent story on Fox News regarding the ever-present six-feet social distancing rule. David, welcome back. You sent me this story a few days ago. Your thoughts? Thank you, Rob. And before I get into that story, which we'll just spend a few minutes on, I, I want to point out to people that it'll be very useful, this Constitutional Law 101, not to try to memorize everything that Rob and I will be speaking about today, but really to come back to it um, as you need to when you hear about stories about constitutional problems or infirmities or violations, and, and especially on this podcast, because we, as Rob pointed out, as lawyers often take for granted uh, the things that we know and we use daily that a non-lawyer, and especially even a non-lawyer or even lawyers who practice in areas other than constitutional law just aren't familiar with. But coming back to the story, there was a story on Fox News and it's been reported elsewhere that Dr. Fauci has said that based upon a new study out of Massachusetts that found that there was no difference between children learning in schools at three feet distance versus six feet. And so now the science has somehow morphed and allowed even closer social distancing, which will allow more schools to open up because it was practically impossible to separate children six feet apart while they're wearing masks and have in-class, in-person teaching. Now, this story is actually the follow-on, and it's not really based so much on the Massachusetts study, which confirmed earlier studies. There's actually, and you can Google it, there was an op-ed piece out of the USA Today by three physician uh, researchers who have very reputable positions dealing with children and infectious diseases. And in this particular article, they point out that the six-foot distancing that was being required of schools purportedly per science was simply a, an abuse by the CDC of their and their colleagues' own research. And that what they point out is that the research didn't find that six feet was a scientific distance any more than really three feet is a scientific distance. Every environment is going to allow an infectious disease that transfers either through you know, air, water molecules in the air, whatever, however it's being transferred, 
is going to be affected differently by that environment. So it's, there is no scientific study that establishes for all environments. And of course, outdoors, it's going to be very different than indoors and, in, and depending upon the circulation and so forth. So this study points out, or this story rather points out, as it originally um, appeared as an opinion piece in the USA Today, and now with Dr. Fauci's announcement that all of a sudden some new Massachusetts study, it wasn't new. The difference is what we talked about before, that everyone has to keep their eye on. Science simply measures certain things. It doesn't tell us that under certain circumstances, what are the risk of imposing the most rigid standard versus moderately rigid standards versus lenient standards? We know that children are far less likely to die from COVID or even get sick than adults. In fact, I, in the op-ed piece, they point out that something like 288 children had died in the United States from COVID versus, you know, many, many uh, times more adults to the point where the number of children who died from COVID was no different than from influenza. So COVID is clearly not targeting that population group. Science doesn't tell us the risk. And all we know from science other than measurement is what they arrive at by a scientific consensus, which is simply a very nebulous way of saying that we think most scientists would agree. The, the other point I'd like to make now, Rob, before getting into the Constitutional Law 101 is we go back, and at least I do, listen to the podcast. And if I misspeak or you misspeak, we'd like to correct it. I, in fact, did last week when talking about the number of vaccines in the United States. I meant to say 90 million plus at the time. Uh, and I said 9 million on a couple occasions. So uh, when we talk about the number of vaccines that have been given out in the United States as of last week, it was something north of 90 million. It's now something north of 100 million. Um, but the analysis that we were applying still applies. And what, it, what was that? Briefly, we have to keep in mind that in the vaccines, just like with the COVID protocols, we know less about these vaccines than we know about any of the older form of vaccines that used inactive or dead viruses. We don't know what happens down the road with RNA or DNA. And I wanna just make this, this comparison. We know, for example, that melanoma, which is the rarest but most deadly of skin cancers, when you look at um, the incidence of melanoma occurring in older adults, we find through epidemiological studies, which are simply studies of different populations that they attempt to control for one particular variable like exposure to sun. So when they study children or adolescents who have been subject to multiple sunburns versus children in those areas that have not been, what they find is that as adults, the children who were subject to sunburns, and we're talking decades later, are, have a greater incidence more likely to have 
melanoma, the deadly skin cancer. We are fairly confident in the scientific world. There's a scientific consensus that the reason for that is that sun and a sunburn to the skin changes, mutates, corrupts certain genes within the, the skin cells. And that those changes as juveniles or adolescents don't manifest themselves until decades later when as older adults, the individuals, God forbid, get melanoma. That is the major question that we have with these new RNA and DNA-related vaccines, which they are using now. That is to say, we don't know what the RNA messaging is going to do down the road. We can suspect, based upon what we do know about DNA, RNA messaging, RNA transfer, the, the workings of, of the cell at the molecular level, but what we don't know about that generally and about these vaccines is far greater than what we do know. So when doctors, and this is something we've heard, tell us, don't worry about which vaccine to take, even though we just found out that AstraZeneca's vaccine, which they're using in Europe, has been suspended by several countries, including some Scandinavian countries, which are fairly advanced with pharmaceutical industry due to blood clotting until they figure out what's going on when they see this time relationship correlation between AstraZeneca vaccine and blood clotting. There is far more that we don't know than what we do know. And what we simply are telling people in this broad podcast and the earlier ones is make your own risk benefit analysis. Don't listen to the doctors or the government officials who say, don't worry about what vaccine you take. Whatever vaccine is available is the best for you. Well, that's simply a public policy, ideologically driven instruction. That's not based on science, has nothing to do with science. Measure your own risk and the own benefit about what we do and don't know before taking a vaccine. You know, that uh, the issue with the six, the six foot uh, versus three foot um, that you started off uh, discussing that Fox News story. I, I wonder uh, how many of these stores that and it's almost, you know, ubiquitous here. You go to any other store, bank or whatever, they all have these six foot stickers or paintings on the ground. Is that all going to change now to uh, to three feet? Uh, so we'll see. Um, but you know, the, the bottom line and the point we're trying to make throughout is this isn't these aren't science decisions. These are are policy decisions made by bureaucrats. Quite frankly, many bureaucrats that I absolutely do not trust because they're left-wing uh, Democrat, Democrats and they love a quest for power. They love to control our lives. So we need to distinguish what is true. When they're telling us science, 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 and the science is telling us this, no, it's government bureaucrats that are telling us this. You can look at the science and make the, uh, make the analysis yourself. And, and so what's let's, fascinating, uh, let me just jump in, Rob. What's fascinating yeah. is that um, people will either trust or distrust government bureaucrats, anonymous government bureaucrats and guys like Fauci, depending upon whether the instruction fits their own ideological bias, right? So the progressives are the ones who tell us, we don't believe the CIA. We don't believe any of the intelligence services. We hate the military. We, we, we know that there's this, you know, 
a military complex that's out there trying to create wars. There's, there's no weapons of mass destruction anywhere near Iraq. It was all made up. And then when the left comes into power and they're talking about vaccines or about Russian collusion, you know, by the, found by the FBI or the CIA, all of a sudden the same progressives take what the government bureaucrats say blindly. It's absolutely correct. No one can challenge it. The right does it too, but the left does it very, very destructively. Yeah, well, I think there's a, an inclination um, on the on the right. Uh, I know certainly my inclination. It's the old uh, Reagan comment that you know the government isn't the answer to your solution. You know the government is the problem most of the time, right? And so we want to get government out of the way. So I think there's amongst the right there is this uh, distrust of government because there's always a quest for power by uh, by government officials on on both sides. But I think uh, for conservatives we tend to to be uh, more, I, I, we scrutinize, I think, the government officials and their and their dictates more so than the than on the uh, on the left. But hey, let's uh, let's segue that into begin our constitutional law one one discussion because it kind of fits in some respects, and this will be a, you know an ongoing discussion, no doubt, as we discuss various legal issues um, throughout this podcast. Um, and and just this is some you know very basic stuff, but it's amazing, and you know we practice in the area of constitutional law. And even discussions with clients or prospective clients and or people just asking us general questions, um, I realize that there there is there's really a lack of fundamental understanding of the of the U.S. Constitution and its application. And, and partly that's I think because uh, a lot of the public schools and others have gotten away from that. Unfortunately, you know it's it should go without saying the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And how do we know that? Well, there's a supremacy clause in the Constitution that says so. Um, and from my perspective, and this is how I always, you know, I approach the Constitution, and unlike the left who say that this is a living, you know, living, breathing document, as soon as you say it's a living, breathing document, then you no longer have a Constitution, right? Because it's all just the will and predilections of the, uh, of the judges who decide what, uh, what it means at any given time. But I think, you know, the, the beauty of our Constitution, the strength of our Constitution is that it, it does two things, in my view. It, it prevents tyranny and it protects liberty. You know, and how does it do that? It does that in, in multiple ways. First, it does that structurally, right, by a diffusion of power. We don't have a king. We don't have a queen. We're supposed to have three co-equal branches of government, right? You have the executive branch. It's the president. That's found in, in Article 2 of the Constitution. The legislative, which is Congress, found in Article 1. And judicial, which is actually the Supreme Court in Article 3. The other federal courts are, in fact, created uh, by Congress. So you have these three co-equal branches and there's supposed to be a separation of powers amongst them to diffuse power, right? That's how you, that's how you prevent tyrannies. You don't wanna put the power into one branch or one, or one person. But another important component, which unfortunately has been totally lost is the concept of federalism, right? We have a federal government, which is supposed to be a government of limited and enumerated powers. But that was, you know, that was blown up with the New Deal legislation, the Commerce Clause, the, the Supreme Court's, you know, upholding various provisions of the of the New Deal legislation, essentially allowed the Commerce Clause to become this extremely expansive reading that granted, I mean, to say, and it probably most people listening, and I know if it, it hits my ears hard when you hear the concept that our federal government's a government of limited enumerated powers. It's like, wait a second, they're in my back pocket for everything, right? The, their their power has gotten so broad 
And that's unfortunately because of the expansive reading of the, uh, of the Commerce Clause. Now, interestingly, there was a, a recent case that, was, uh, that I saw in kind of a rarity, striking down a, a federal laws beyond the authority of the federal government to enact. And that was a you know, part of the COVID um, regulations that didn't allow uh, landowners I think this case arose out of Texas, didn't allow landowners uh, to evict people from their property that, that weren't paying rent. And the federal judge said, why does the federal government have any authority to do that? In fact, they don't. I mean, this is personal property in the state, but it's, you know, this, our, the way our constitution is set up is that the states are the ones that possess what are known as general police powers, not the federal government. Federal government should, have, should, should only legislate very narrowly, but we know that that's not the, not the case. But like, well, let, me pause you, let me pause yes. you there. Um, and, and so let's just let our audience kind of understand that. When, when Rob talks about the Constitution as being the supreme law of the land, um, the obvious uh, or maybe not so obvious explanation is that, that it's the supreme law of the land because it was understood at the time of its drafting by the founders of this country, and they were brilliant political minds that these are universal principles based upon what we understand today at the time of the founding that should apply ad infinitum. They're not to be changed or modified over time based upon what people believe on any given day. If you want laws that change over time, then those are the laws that Congress or state legislatures enact and change all the time. The unique aspect of the Constitution, the only thing that makes it constitutional, the bedrock, is that it doesn't change. And of course, in modern times, that's no longer true in the main. Courts have decided, the Supreme Court on down, that we can change it willy-nilly. Now, conservative or originalist thinkers, like probably the, one of the greatest justices in, in my lifetime, Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas, who still sits on the bench, is a true originalist, Justice Scalia was a great advocate of originalism. But you can bet on all the progressive judges that sit on the court, um, that they all believe that it can be changed. So you have this fundamental law. Now at the same time at the founding, when the founders were deciding, how do we set up this government? They understood that for all of those legal systems and laws that are going to change over time, the closest to the people, the individual local communities are the ones that have the greatest power. The further out you go from the local communities to the state, to the federal government, the less power they have. And the reason being is that the founders understood that government qua government, government as a government isn't anything. The inherent powers to control our own lives as with the individual. And so the federal constitution and federalism that Rob, the term Rob used was really a tension between those individuals who thought that the federal government should be, give, be granted more power and the states a little bit less versus those who felt the state should have all the power and the federal government should be next to nothing. And it was a compromise and it was a brilliant compromise. The federal government can only get involved in regulating, passing laws, those things in our lives where there are, and the principal one being 
interstate commerce, meaning when, when you move a good from one state to another, because each state might have their own laws, the federal government is the best arbiter, the best third party to be able to regulate that kind of thing, that interstate commerce, things going from one state to another. Other things that the Constitution gives the federal government power to regulate is immigration, war, foreign powers, things that any individual state would be very poorly qualified to do because each state might have a different view. Yeah, coining money, for example, right? Because you, right. you, we need to have a, a national commerce, a national economy, and not 50 separate individual economies. It just practically, it wouldn't work, right? right. And, and it's just, I mean, the, the genius of the founding fathers of how they created this. And like I said, this tension is all good, right? Because when you have that tension, again, it's a diffusion of, it's a diffusion of power. Remember those, those two principles, protect liberty and prevent tyranny. And, and that's part, but the, the more we monkey with what the founding fathers did, and we've done a lot of that, like I said, the New Deal legislation, where they, they created this you know, super broad Commerce Clause uh, interpretation has undermined so much of what our founding fathers put in place. And there's, there's several other things that have been done. Right. But just let, the, me, the, let me just put a parenthetical, because yeah. some people might not understand what the New Deal legislation was. In, in the early 20th century, um, there were issues with the industrial age that were creating a public policy issue. So take, for example, child labor. So we didn't have, in many states, didn't have minimum ages for uh, being employed. And so you had, in some states, some pretty abusive circumstances where very young children were put to work, um, either because they didn't have proper parental supervision or the parents were taking advantage of you know, the strong backs of their young children to make money. At the state levels, some states enacted legislation, some didn't, and it became a very big issue. And that was one of the impetuses of the federal government stepping in and saying, we need to create a national standard. Even though the labor that was involved was wholly within the state and oftentimes in commerce dealing entirely within the state. But that's where the courts came in when those kinds of laws were challenged. And they would say, this is an interstate commerce. This legislation is unconstitutional. The New Deal legislation became the New Deal case law in which the federal courts and especially the Supreme Court stepped in and said, well, we're going to now change our understanding that has been the law of the land about what interstate commerce is. And we're going to say that, you know, if it even has these indirect consequences and they started expanding what indirect consequences were, um, we're going to call it interstate commerce to the point where prior to Obamacare hitting the Supreme Court, the interstate commerce clause as interpreted by the federal courts almost became a nullity. Everything and anything could practically be considered interstate commerce, even if it was entirely restricted within the state, because you could always find some consequence. There were certain cases, but especially in the Obamacare case, where the, the interstate commerce finally started to find a little bit of its legs again, but that gets too much into the weed, I think, for present purposes. 
Right. It just, it, just as an example, there's this famous case, Workett versus Filburn, where the, the federal government was going to regulate this farmer's growing of wheat on his own farm for his own personal use, because they said that could somehow affect the, the broader market for wheat. So it affected interstate commerce. But the point being is the, the federal government is supposed to be limited numerated powers, but the Commerce Clause has almost created a general police power, as it were, um, for the federal government. But there's some limits, like, for example, when you think about what does it mean by police power? Well, states have laws against drunk driving, right? There isn't really a federal law against, against drunk driving. Most of the criminal laws, unless they have, they can find some nexus to interstate commerce and the likes, are generally within the, uh, within this, within the states. But the more you break, the, the more the states lose their authority and lose their power, and the power shifts to Washington, D.C., again, we're going to erode this protection of, uh, of liberty, and we're seeing it, and we're seeing it played out. So just getting to the, you know, Congress, we have, and, it's, and again, think of the genius of our founding fathers. We have the House of Representatives, and the members are elected by, by population. And the other thing is kind of interesting there, you know, they, they have a far shorter term than the Senate, but every, every bill for a, for a tax must originate in the House, because the, the founding fathers understood the power to tax is really the power to destroy, the power to control. And so any tax bill has to originate in the House that's most responsive to the people by population and the fact that the, uh, you know, the, the, their term is much shorter than the, uh, than the Senate. And, and let me just, I think you mean not tax bill, but appropriations bill. Well, any, any new tax must, must originate in the, in the House. Right. So, and, the, uh, and then on the Senate side, the Senate was designed to, 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 as a matter of legislation, to give more power to, and voice to the states. So regardless of your population, each state has two senators, right? As I'm, I'm hoping every listener understands that. But what's very interesting to me is that the, the original, the founders originally had the senators being appointed by the state's legislatures. And that was before they changed that. And that was by the 17th Amendment. We amended the Constitution to make the senators popularly elected. Now, what did that do? Like, for example, here in the state of Michigan, and even if you look at the, the years that Obama was in office, vast, vast majority of the states were controlled by conservative Republican legislatures. So any new Senate seats that came up during that time should have been appointed by the state legislatures, which would have meant a lot more Republicans in the, uh, in the Senate. In the state of Michigan, our legislature has, is, is typically Republican, yet we have two left-wing senators. Why is that? Because, these, because they're popularly elected, these, these elections have now become national elections, particularly here in Detroit with all the unions, right? The unions out of the, uh, you know, the automotive industry and the likes. And so you get a ton of money that floods in from other states and from other locations because of the, the, you know, the, the, the individual private interests and, and political interests of various groups that flood into these, these Senate elections, making them properly elected. I think that was a huge mistake when they met the Constitution, because that way, if you have them elected by the legislature and the state legislatures are more reflective of the, of the people and the local interests and the local needs, that the voice of the legislature, as it were, the state's legislatures, could be heard through the senators that they appoint to the U.S. Senate. So I, to me, that was one of, one of the amendments that, that structurally changed the Constitution in a way that I think uh, that we're seeing the, the harm that's being caused today. And let's keep in mind, again, on this concept of federalism and, and the founding, why this idea of not popularly elected senators versus popularly elected representatives uh, was so critical to the design in the same way that the Electoral College for the election of the president versus a popular vote 
was critical. At the founding, there was a debate as there was on almost every issue among the founders and it was ultimately decided um, in favor of the system we have. The debate was, should we embrace a purely democratic system in which everyone has one vote, an equal vote, and they all participate in every decision in electing our officials, federal, state, whatever they may be. In the case of the founding, it was the federal level. The founder, and the same would be true of the president. You go out and vote, whoever gets the most votes wins. Whoever in a state votes for the, you know, more votes for a senator, he wins. The founders rejected popularism, democracy in its simple form, and formed what we call the constitutional republic. A republic is a form of democracy, but it isn't democracy simple. It isn't a consensus. It isn't a popular vote. It isn't simply the majority. A republic is an indirect democracy. That is to say, while the House of Representatives in each state are voted by popular vote, they are subject to a much shorter term and it's turned over. And but whereas the Senate, which is oftentimes called the upper chamber of Congress, Congress, the senators were originally decided upon by state legislatures, not popular vote. And that mechanism separated the senators from the mass or majority will of any given time. And especially because their term was longer. So the senators and the Senate were considered to be more deliberate. They didn't have to respond to the latest polling because one, their election wasn't coming up every two years. So the people would, you know, would forget a little bit and remember the longer term policies that they voted for. And they weren't going to be elected by a popular vote in six years. They were going to be elected by legislatures, legislators within the state legislation, that uh, legislative body that could think more deliberately about who they want to represent them. What were their long-term effects? And so you had a balance between the House of Representatives, popularly elected, and the senators not so. The same is true of the president. We could have had a popular vote, but the founders understood they would much rather have the states where, as Rob pointed out, it's closer to the people, it's more local, where the states could decide at the state level how they were going to appoint their own electors for the electoral college. And then these people got together and would decide on who would be the president. It could be based upon how the people voted in their state or could be based upon other aspects. Those, that tension, that debate that took place was critical. What we've moved to, and especially with the change from the senators being elected by state legislators to popular vote, is a far more simple democracy. And it's exacerbated by the fact that today with mass media and social media and, and immediate communication, every single decision is subject to, and the polls say that most people agree with this person. The polls say most people don't agree with this. 
has changed the complex by reducing the complexity of political decisions. They're no, now far less deliberate and far more popularity-based. And we see that looking back at Obamacare or the new bill that we'll ultimately talk about, H.R. 1, in which no one has a chance to read the thousands of pages of the statute of the law before they vote on it. They just hear from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from someone who might have read part of the statute that this is how you should vote without deliberation and careful consideration. Because, right, I mean, there is a concern of tyranny of the majority, right? You look at uh, if and you look at what the left is trying to do, which is exactly the direction they want to go, because you don't want to have, you know, all these decisions controlled by large population centers, which you see L.A., New York and Chicago. They shouldn't be the ones to decide on a national level what the people in Nebraska are doing or what the people in Iowa or Wyoming. And and again, the, the Electoral College, and this is a whole nother, you know discussion, is all about that. It's diffusion of power so we don't have a, a so we don't have a tyranny, whether it be a tyranny of the majority or otherwise, by you know, a single tyrant tyrant. And that's and that's how it's set up. And, and again, the structure was so beautiful. Here's one other uh, kind of little note on the side. You know, we had to amend the Constitution to make the income tax lawful. I mean, think about that. Oh, my goodness. What were they thinking about that? The 16th Amendment around 1913, I believe, it was passed. So for those who are listening, the, 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 uh, the income tax, the federal government, as our founders originally intended it, did not have the power to, uh, to tax your income. That was, uh, I think it was, they called it a capitation tax. And those were impermissible under the constitution. We had to amend the constitution for that. Again, our founding fathers understood the power to tax is really the power to control and destroy. But, you know, we've, uh, we've, we've continuously, I think, amended the constitution in ways that have, have created mistakes. And we're seeing the, uh, I think, the repercussions of, of those and, and, you know, coming uh, full circle here now with what we're seeing the left doing with our government either amending the Constitution or allowing the Supreme Court to effectively legislate as non-elected officials, because that's what they do. I also wanted to just make another point, Rob, and that is that when, when you point out that the tyranny of the majority, quite right, and that's precisely what the Bill of Rights were, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you leave it up to the majority, um, whoever's in control is going to say the other side is talking hate speech and we want to outlaw their speech. And we've been told that our speech can constitute hate speech by the Michigan Attorney General, who we're now suing. But that's why you have a First Amendment as part of the Bill of Rights. The very First Amendment says, I have the right to speak my opinion. And the federal government can't pass a law that restricts that right, no matter how many of the people constitute um, you know, a supermajority or what have you. My First Amendment rights are mine. And same with the second amendment to the Bill of Rights, which is my right to have carry a weapon or have a weapon. And even though the majority might decide we don't want you to have a weapon, we want to put all kinds of restrictions on gun ownership, you can't change the constitutional law. It is a break against the tyranny of the majority. All right, and that's good segue because we're going to just I'm going to start addressing the judicial branch. Right, when you think about how the, the, the founders set up the judicial branch in Article 3, it was intended to be the weakest. They weren't given the power of the purse, nor are they given the power of the sword, but we know that's not true today, and we're constantly seeing what you know, I've described, you've described as judicial tyranny. 
I mean, two cases jump out, Roe versus Wade, right? It struck down laws that were the police powers of the states and in virtually every single state to legalize abortion as a matter of constitutional law. And you think about how that's, you know, that's like etching it in, in stone and, and they, they just don't have that power or, or the, uh, you know, the, the, the more recent case um, where they upheld so-called same-sex marriage. They had to overturn amendments that were made in state constitutions in virtually every state. That's not a, the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has no business legislating in that particular area. And that's exactly what they did. You mentioned the Bill of Rights. And hopefully the you know, people listening understand that the Bill of Rights are the first 10 amendments to the U.S. US Constitution. They originally only applied as against the federal government. But over time, they've been incorporated as applying against state governments, including you know, at the state level, the cities, the municipal level, through the 14th Amendment. It's called the Incorporation Doctrine. Don't want to get too, you know, too specific of these, but in the 14th Amendment was one of the, what are called the Civil War Amendments, one of the amendments that arose out of the Civil War. Um, it has you know, obviously the Equal Protection Clause and it applies more restrictions on states. Also, the uh, 13th Amendment came out of the Civil War. That's one that abolished slavery. The 15th Amendment, um, which guaranteed the right to vote based on uh, regardless of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Um, it wasn't until later that women got the right to vote, though, by the way. But as, as David said, the, the Bill of Rights are a break on government power. They don't confer rights on anybody. They are rights themselves that are inalienable, rights that are endowed by our creator, as our Declaration of Independence said. And that, again, is the genius of our founders. Right. This isn't this. The, the Bill of Rights is not a conferring of rights. It's a recognition of rights and a recognition of the limits on the power of government to interfere with these rights. And interesting, you know, there was a huge debate during the founding over whether rights should be codified in a Bill of Rights for fear that if you, you know, if you named some, it would exclude others. But these the rights that were codified in the Bill of Rights were the most important to our founders who understood the danger of government tyranny. And if you look at, and these are unfortunately the two amendments addressing the question of, you know, that the rights being conferred that, that aren't listed here, you know, they belong to the people. The Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And the Tenth is, the Tenth Amendment, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Unfortunately, as we've seen, and David, we know through 20 plus years of constitutional litigation, you don't ever see any cases or very seldom you see cases where the ninth and 10th amendments are brought up. And unfortunately, I mean, those are two amendments that I would like to see life being breathed back into so we can kind of bring back some of these, you know, powers of federalism that it's in the state and not in the, uh, and not in the federal, in the federal constitution itself. Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you say that, um, the uh, Bill of Rights were expanded to the first 10, expanded to the state level, et cetera. The entity, the institution expanding them has been the Supreme Court. And the same is true of government power and the, literally the, the ignoring of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments that make clear that the, the powers reside with the people and then at the state level because it's closer government, not with the federal government. The federal government only has the powers given to it by the Constitution. But the Supreme Court over the years, 
and the lower federal courts as well, their tendency has always been, with exception, but it's a tendency, their tendency has always been to expand the power of the federal government, that is to say, literally to undo the system and the constitution that was put in place by our founders and to shrink the individual's natural rights under natural law so that the Ninth and Tenth Amendment become essentially silent amendments and the other amendments that deal with the limits on the federal government have been turned on their head and expanded exponentially so that the system we have today and the way the laws have been interpreted have in many respects very little to do with the U.S. Constitution as originally created. Yeah, and anyone has a, you know, I, I was in the Marines for 13 years, stationed in Quantico, Virginia a couple of times, so I made many trips to Washington, D.C. And when you think about that, the, we're a government of limited enumerated powers. You watch through Washington, D.C., just look at the size of the EPA building, for example. It's not, even, it's not even the building of Congress. It's not even the White House. It's not even, you know, the Supreme Court. It's an administrative building that dwarfs almost every other building. And I think there's more people working in the EPA than anywhere. And that's just created by by administration just it, it's an administrative agency that that practically i mean has control over many people's lives and they this whole regulatory you know bureaucracy that's developed in the federal government itself is all that's a whole nother discussion um that we may have uh, during one of these podcasts but i so i want it that's that's a very very brief overview of the of the structure and the setup of the constitution now what we deal with mostly is is civil rights litigation there's a federal statute, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, which allows you to, to bring causes of action in federal court for the violation of fundamental constitutional rights or a violation of federal law, too. But principally, we deal with mostly uh, First Amendment cases, the right to freedom of speech, the right to free exercise uh, of religion. One of the things that people need to understand, in order to bring an action, as we said, that you know, the, the Bill of Rights is a break on the power of government. It's not a break on the power of private entities, right? So you always, the first requirement uh, typically, and these, I mean, they, we're, we're addressing this broadly, but it's, it's something I want to stand because I get this question all the time from, from clients or potential clients. There's a requirement what's for what's called state action, right? And, and in order to, for there to be a triggering of constitutional rights, you have to have a state actor that's, that's involved. And there's also another kind of uh, concept of standing. These are two things I just want to address briefly um, and finish up here. You know, Article I, 3. I, Rob, but Rob, let me just tell people, by state actor, we mean someone um, involved in the government, someone exactly. part of the government. Right. State actor could be a federal government official or it could be a state government official. It could be a city government official. It's a government official. They use the term state actor, state meaning essentially government. You can describe it as a government actor if you want. That's that might be even uh, clearer. You know, Article three, the other thing about the, the federal constitution, Article three, it limits the power of the federal courts. It's limited to what's called cases or controversies. That's in Article three. So you, so there has to be, and there's a, trust me, there is a lot about this. Standing is one of the, uh, is one of the main, um, one of the main issues we constantly deal with um, because it's an issue that there's sort of prudential judgment associated with it, which means if it's a hot button issue and the judge doesn't want to address the issue, oftentimes we'll get kicked out of the case will be dismissed on standing grounds. And, and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit just uh, briefly without getting too far into the weeds. 
But to violate the U.S. Constitution, you must have a state actor. So it's not Walmart. It's not Facebook. It's not Twitter. It's not an abortion center. You know, I hear all the time people saying, you know, look, you know, Walmart won't let me, you know, hand out leaflets in their store. Or, you know, this abortion uh, agency won't let me, you know, proselytize or, or, or you know, uh, sidewalk counsel to uh, individuals who are walking, you know, up their private uh, sidewalk. Um, or, you know, I've been shut down by Facebook or by Twitter. Those are all private actors. They, them taking action does not trigger any constitutional protections. It, they just don't. I mean, they, you know, they can violate other tort laws, but it's not a right a violation of your, you know, right to freedom of speech. But, but a private actor can become a state actor if there's a conspiracy or there's joint action. So, for example, if an FBI agent, he thinks that there might be some evidence of a crime in your home, um, but he doesn't go through the, the process, the constitutional process of getting a, uh, a warrant signed by a you know, detached uh, magistrate judge, you know, some neutral uh, judicial officer to review it to say, yes, you get a warrant. But he said he goes to your neighbor and says, hey, can you, can you go into uh, you know, Rob's house there and, and go you know, rifle through his closet and see if you can find this item? Sends the neighbor in, the neighbor comes out, he finds it, and the, and the agent's like, I've got it now. Well, that would be a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable search and seizures. He can't just use a private actor to do to do his bidding. They were obviously, in that case, working uh, working jointly. So, to begin with, at the at the very at the very uh, you know outset, we must have a government actor involved. That's a I hear that all the time. Like for example, somebody will tell me, "Oh, at work, I you know I got fired because I'm a Christian. They violated my constitutional rights." And I'll ask him, well, "Who's your employer?" And if they say it's a private party, I was like, well, you don't have any constitutional issues. Um, you know, there might be some statutory issues, but you don't have a constitutional issue. Um, so that's, that's a, fundamental, you know, a fundamental principle that, that uh, the listeners need to bear in mind. Secondly, standing. And I just want to address this again kind of briefly. We have some, some news items I definitely want to get to. I've been trying to get to, and we've, we've, uh, we've had long discussions um, but I want to address just standing. Standing is because I, I hear this all the time from people. Oh, I want to challenge this law. Just because Congress passed a law, even if it's going to raise your taxes, doesn't mean that you have standing to challenge it. As I mentioned, the, the, our Constitution set up uh, courts that have to decide cases or controversies. They don't issue what's, what's known as advisory opinions. And there's, you know, there's some good prudential reasons for that. You want to make sure that the parties that are arguing the case before the court have you know, some skin in the game, right? That they're, that they're the actual parties that will, that will make the, the, the appropriate and relevant and arguments to, to resolve this particular issue. But to have standing, you have to show that you've been injured somehow. There has to be some injury to you, not just because you're observing something that you don't like. You have to have been injured by that, by whatever law you want to challenge or any action that you want to challenge. It has to be personal to you. And again, and I'd, taxpayer standing is one of those where the courts have essentially you know, eviscerated any idea that you have taxpayer standing. It's very, very narrow and limited, and for potential reasons. They don't want, you know, just because a law is passed and it might raise your taxes, that doesn't give everybody the opportunity to you know, open the courthouses to a floodgate, you know, to, to have litigation that's just going to you know, flood the courts on any new law. So you have to show that you have some injury, and it has to be traced to what the actual action that you're following, I mean, what you're challenging. And then the injury has to be redressed by the court. I mean, the court has to be able to issue an order that's, that helps, you know, that minimizes or reduces or compensates you for the injury that was caused. So what, what the courts want to do is make sure you have a parties that have a sufficiently adverse relationship 
to litigate the case. They don't want to have advisory opinion. So, you know, you're sitting out there and you're watching HR, you're looking at HR one. He's like, Oh, I think it's unconstitutional. I want to challenge it. Well, to challenge it, you have to come up with a way with how are you going to be specifically injured by that law? And then how is that injury traceable to that law? And how is a judge ruling in your favor going to redress what that particular injury is? So again, it's, and so it's, there's, there's a lot tied up in that, but you, you need to understand that in particularly, you know, you reach out to us, you want to bring a case challenging a law. We have to show that there's been some particular injury to you. And just to give you an idea of how the courts can often use this in ways where they don't want to address, you know, sort of hot potato issues. Like for example, I have a, a case in Pennsylvania we challenged the mask mandate in Pennsylvania. And uh, the judge there said that my clients who are residents of Pennsylvania, who are subject to the mask mandate and who will be penalized as a matter of law if they don't wear the mask, that uh, they don't have standing, which that's just wrong. I mean, he just didn't want to address the issue. And he, he came up with this, well, it's just a generalized grievance because everybody's harmed by the mandate. Well, that doesn't answer the question. Just because you have a law that adversely affects a large number of people doesn't mean that an individual who's part of that group is not personally harmed by it because you are. And that case is up on appeal in the Third Circuit. But I just think the judge didn't want to address the, uh, you know, the thorny issue of striking down, you know, Pennsylvania's mask mandate. So he, he kind of punted, in my view, on standing. And we see that, uh, we see that all the time. Rob, let me just, again, provide the audience a little bit of context. Keep in mind, folks, that the standing requirement that Rob has described is essentially the federal standard because in the federal constitution, it requires cases and controversies, which I'll come back to. The state, each individual state and their court state system can have different rules. And some states do allow for advisory opinions where you just ask the court to advise you and others about a given issue. Usually there's some element of kind of case and controversy that they require, but there, some states have much broader standing, allowing more generalized litigation. Now, why do the federal courts have cases and controversies? As Rob pointed out, because you want to make sure that the individual has skin in the game. One of the main differences just culturally between the U.S. and Europe, for example, is that we have what's called an adversarial legal system a plaintiff, a defendant, the state prosecutor versus the defendant in criminal cases. And the courts are completely neutral. They don't get involved in the actual fighting and litigating the specific issues. They expect the parties to zealously advocate for each side so that they get the best arguments on both sides of the case, and then they can decide. In Europe, in many of the countries in Europe, they the judges literally get involved in the litigation process in doing discovery and in, in asking the witnesses questions through depositions and even trial. And there they have a, um, they depend less on the adversaries debating and fighting over the issues than they themselves digging into it. As a result, the Supreme Court has decided what is a case in controversy, all the issues that Rob has talked about in the analysis of whether or not you have proper standing. But anyone who knows standing, and the case in Philadelphia is a, is a classic case in point, anyone who understands the jurisprudence, the legal aspects of this notion of standing and cases and controversies knows that the Supreme Court has created a system 
that is far more nebulous than it is clear. And precisely because they've, as it were, kind of messed around in the mud of this issue for so many years, judges can kind of say, well, you do have standing, you don't. Let me wet my finger and stick it up in the wind and see which way the wind is blowing based upon my own personal predilections about this case. So there's, there's no real litmus test or objective standard. We've got some generalized axioms about what standing is, but when you actually start applying facts to case law, it's not at all clear that the courts, even the same court, is following any objective standard whatsoever. Right. When, when you see in the case law that there's prudential considerations, whenever you see that word prudential, you know you're in trouble, right? That means uh, you have latitude. And interesting, you know, that, that Pennsylvania case, you know, the, uh, the state of Pennsylvania didn't, didn't argue that we lack standing. And that's one of the issues. The, the court, as a threshold matter, has to decide whether it has jurisdiction. And standing is one of those jurisdictional issues. Because if it's not a case of controversy, the court doesn't have jurisdiction. And jurisdiction simply means power. So he said, look, I don't have the power to decide this case because there's no standing. Well, and, and, and it's one of those issues, jurisdiction can be raised at any time and it can be raised sua sponte by the court. And in this case, the attorney general for the state of Pennsylvania didn't argue that we lack standing. It wasn't until it came time for the judge to rule on the merits that he decided on his own that we don't have standing. And so now we're on appeal to the Third Circuit. So I want to, that's, our following podcasts will certainly be discuss, discussing in more detail some of these issues and, and certainly getting more into the weeds of the, of the constitutional amendments themselves, probably principally the First and Second Amendments. You know, in my view, the First Amendment allows for a peaceful revolt of the people uh, to government tyranny, to seek redress for grievances. But failing that, we have the Second Amendment. And I'll, I'll leave it at that because we will get into those discussions uh, far uh, far later, you know, as my as uh, David has said, I think very carefully and, and properly noted in, in prior um, podcasts that we're currently in a non-kinetic civil war. And, you know, how far will the left go and how far will the right let it? Um, these are slowly becoming very, uh, very dangerous times, right? So much, so much for unity. And, uh, and David, if you have any final comments, I want to transition to some of these news items that I've been anxious to uh, to discuss here on, on our podcast. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts on, again, we just kind of discussed the general structure of the constitution and some, some really prudential initial points about, uh, you know, standing and, and, uh, and the act and the requirement for state actors. And we'll get into the, uh, you know, the more substantive on the individual amendments as we go through these uh, podcasts over time. Now I'm looking forward to the, the discussion now on the current events, because I think that'll bring us back. People can have the opportunity to go back and re-listen to the earlier part because there's a lot there and a lot to unpack, but yes. Yeah. And you events. know, one of the things that I've been wanting to, uh, cause this came out, I believe it was March for March 5th, excuse me, of this year. And as you know, people are listening to this. And as I, I briefly mentioned, you know, I spent 13 years on active duty in the Marine Corps uh, proudly served. I was uh, an infantry officer, resigned my commission as a major. My dad was a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps, fought in the, uh, in the Korean War. My uh, older brother was a sergeant in the Marine Corps in the infantry, and my younger brother was a captain in the Marine Corps in the infantry. And so I see this, uh, this headline, stand down to address extremism in the ranks. My beloved Marine Corps is going to have a stand down. Now, in their defense, in some respect, this is a Department of Defense-wide directive, 
But uh, I'd like to think that Marines have a little bit more of a, of a backbone. So they're doing this stand down so they can have training to ferret out, apparently, extremism in the ranks. And what are they referring to? They're referring to, you know, supposed white nationalists, right? Really, but they're Trump supporters is what they're looking for. This all came out after, you know, the January 6th so-called insurrection, which it wasn't, not even close. Meanwhile, our capital is still surrounded by barbed wire fences and, and armed uh, military uh, members of the National Guard. Meanwhile, our border to the south is being overrun, you know, by, by illegals who are entering the state, many of them COVID positive, or at least a, a you know, significant number, many of them children being, you know, being abused and used by drug cartels. And we have a government, a president that could care less about our border, but rather surround the Capitol with, uh, with uh, you know, barbed wire and, and National Guard enforcing our military to have this stand down. So commanders and supervisors at all levels will conduct and document a leadership stand down in order to address issues of extremism in the ranks. I find that so offensive. I can't even begin. Right, because who are they trying to? They're trying to ferret out anybody who might be, you know, a red-blooded patriotic Trump supporter. Quite frankly, those are the people you need in the ranks. Those are the patriots that need to be in the ranks, right? Not this this nonsense that they're trying to impose. Uh, that in this idea that we're somehow, you know, this there's all these racists in the military. That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. And and it, it's it's just I can't tell you how disgusted. I am, you know, am by this and that the thought that even our military leaders and our generals, I was hoping and I, you know, I still have some friends right now that are generals at senior positions. If I was them, I'd turn to part defense. I go pound sand. You know, this is nonsense. I'm not, we're going to get to war fighting. We're going to get guys prepared to fight battles, to fight in war. I'm not going to do your woke nonsense in the Marine Corps. And it saddens me that they actually went along with this nonsense. And, and Justin, I know you have something to say, but I want to just segue into this. So how much of this extremism ferreting are they going to look for those who are involved in these Black Lives Matter protests and these Antifa protests? You want to talk about extremists, anti-American extremists, Marxist extremists. If you want to ferret people out of the military, get them out of the military. Not the, not the freedom-loving, you know, true-blooded Trump supporters. Those are the guys I want in the military. They're the ones that are going to uphold their oath of office. But are they doing it? I doubt there's any. And certainly, you know, why did this thing come out in March? Meanwhile, these Black Lives Matter protesters and Antifa people were burning down our cities throughout the, uh, throughout the summer. They were, they were attacking federal buildings. I mean, you want to talk about insurrection. That was an insurrection. Yet no extremism stand down then. This is nonsense. Well, Rob, look, um, you're clearly vested in, in, in this and, and understandably so was a Marine and as a combat Marine officer, um, Rob did not mention that in the first Iraq war, he was overseas there in the Middle East. Um, and so um, it clearly ring, you know, touches a, a, a sensitive spot for him. And it should for every American. The, the fact is, is that, and we'll talk about this next week when we get into, um, God willing, the whole discussion of what the left has done to steal this particular election. And Election simply, and why we're in a kinetic, a non-kinetic, non-violent civil war now. Um, but whether or not this leads to a kinetic civil war, which we would never advocate for, in fact, the opposite, um, is going to be based upon or, or predicated upon these kinds of issues. Because what is the left doing 
when it turns to the military and tries to, um, and I'll use a, a term from, from the 60s and 70s, feminize the military. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but and turn them into the woke society, um, the PC society. What are they trying to do? What they've done in many other, if not all other important spheres in American life. The, the nihilist, the anarchist, the communist of the 1960s, they were either blowing up government buildings and killing police officers or advocating that kind of revolution, including violent revolution, have now become professors, uh, presidents, bureaucrats, educators in the, in the elementary, junior, and high school levels. They own the educational system. They pretty much own the bureaucracy. They own the media. They own big tech. What is one of the most, there's two very important institutions that they don't yet own at the rank and file level. They own it more or less at the higher levels, i.e. the police forces and the military. At the highest levels, to become a police commissioner, you have to be a political animal. So who you have to report to? The progressives who own all those other levers of power. To be a general in any of the military branches or an admiral in the Navy, you have to have gone through a political process to get those stars, and especially at the highest levels of the Pentagon, which means you think less like a military man than you do a politician. And who are you responding to? The progressives who now own the political sphere and the media sphere, because if you're called out by the media, politically, you're dead. So what does the left want to do? The left now understands that the rank and file and the junior officers and the middle level officers like Rob, et cetera, these individuals are hardcore red, white, and blue Americans. And they understand the basic Judeo-Christian principles upon which this country was founded. What do they want to do? They want to root them out. And they're going to start with what they consider to be the, the outer margins of that political base with the so-called Trumpians or what they call now the uh, QAnons. Anybody who doesn't you know, articulate the, the, the PC line is called a QAnon or a Trumpian or, or whatever it may be. They're going to try to root these people out, to get them out of the military, get them out of the police forces. And that's this whole defunding of the police. If you can defund the police and argue for defunding and argue for non-police kind of intervention, what are they really doing? They're reducing the police force and they're going to start selectively deciding who's going to be in and who's not going to be in based upon ideology, who is articulating the woke narrative, the progressive narrative. And if you don't, you no longer fit. So that over a period of years, even decades, these people have patience. The military, the police forces, the union members, not the union leadership, these individuals will have been essentially morphed into another mirrored version of the media, the bureaucracy, et cetera, and gaining another essential level of control so that 
the non-kinetic civil war is a done deal for the progressives. They win hands down. There's no way that conservative America ever articulates its position with any kind of authority. You know, this, I, I just want to address just briefly the Black Lives Matter, and we probably need to uh, be wrapping, wrapping up here. You know, this, this group, they use, like so many left-wing anarchist groups, they will use the wedge of so-called, you know, social justice, racial justice to, to promote a broader, a, uh, you know, a much broader uh, agenda in, in a way that really it's, it's, a, it's a Marxist agenda. Here's what they, you know, they had posted for the longest time. They have a We Believe uh, page on the website for Black Lives Matter, which, by the way, I heard uh, recently raised somewhere in the neighborhood of $90 million um, last year. But they had, and, and in fact, because of the, uh, the, the shift in, in people and the popularity of Black Lives Matter, they, they had to modify their website, but they took this, they took this particular um, what we believe provision out. It says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable, end quote. They also have, quote, we foster a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless he, she, he, or they disclose otherwise, end quote. What does any of this stuff have to do with, you know, racial justice and racial inequality? These people are anarchists. You know, when I see a Black Lives Matter sign out there, I see a sign that says, I hate America. I hate God. I'm an anarchist. You know, and, and the, this whole notion, this narrative, and we don't have time to go into the details. And we've, I know we've gone through, you and I, prior to coming on, on this uh, podcast, went through all the data. This, this narrative that America is, race, that America is racist or systemically racist, or that police forces are in fact racist is an absolute lie. You can go research it yourself. We don't have the time to go through it here, but it's an absolute fabrication. One simple example, if, if it's so, you know, if it's such systemic racism, right, with the uh, the George Floyd, uh, you know, incident out in, uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who, by the way, is the top law enforcement officer for, for the state of Minnesota? Hmm, let me see from the very top. It's, it's Keith Ellison. He's an African-American Muslim. If this is so systemic, the top law enforcement officer in the state where this, you know, the epicenter of, this, of these protests uh, this summer occurred, the top law enforcement officer is an African-American man who's in charge of all the police forces out there in, uh, in Minnesota. It's, it's just, it's a false narrative. These people are anarchists. And, and everyone listening to this needs to understand that. Do we think there should be racism? Of Get rid of all racism. I don't, we shouldn't see things in color, right? As David had mentioned, my, my favorite Supreme Court justice is Clarence Thomas. It has absolutely nothing to do with the man's color of his skin. It has everything to do with, as Martin Luther King said, the content of his character, or in this case, his jurisprudence and how brilliant the man is. We need to stop seeing things in color. The left wants us to divide, right? This, this, uh, this, these politics of identity politics is all about division. And I've said it before, Satan is the father of lies and the father of division. This is all evil. Black Lives Matter, this, that is an anarchist group. You want to do some extremism, train the Marine Corps, should ferret out those who support this Black Lives Matter, anti-American, godless, anarchist agenda. And if I may, just one 
because I, I applauded my, my, uh, my bishop in our diocese. He made a public statement that said, quote, many of the Black Lives Matter policy declarations are inimical to a Catholic understanding of human dignity, personal happiness, and the common good. Most notably, the organization's stance on matters relating to marriage, the family, and human sexuality, including its promotion of a transgender ideology, end quote. It's a godless agenda. The only thing I really have to add, Rob, is just a note on this idea of racism and the kind of um, approach at the uh, federal level to all these problems. Um, I think racism and, and the, the claim of systemic racism deserves a podcast in and of itself, if not several, and we will get to that. All I will say on the, on the subject today, however, is that the idea that white society or white males are racist, systemically racist, is as obnoxious as saying that blacks or Indians or Latinos are X, Y, and Z. Criminals, geniuses, whatever it may be, and talk about races as a collective group simply. Human nature is such that we have seen discrimination and bigotry in all societies, in black African societies before colonialists came in, there was tribalism and discrimination there. There was among indigenous populations, among American Indian tribes. There is among white society, black society, brown society, Christian society, Jewish society, it's part of human nature. There's nothing more racist about the United States of America than any other country or group. In fact, if you look at the history of the United States and the, the, the fact that we fought against slavery and what would take place through just an abolition by way of a very, very deadly civil war, we took that very seriously. And we've had legislation and constitutional amendments, as we've talked about, to deal with that aspect of human nature that was cooked into the system because slavery was part of economics at the time. No country has done more to rid itself of that and have embraced diversity and minority more than the United States, no country. And I, that can be defended across the board. So the idea that, that there's some kind of systemic racism that can be, as it were, rooted out by some law or by some um, uh, changing of the military or what defunding the police is simply um, not rational. I do wanna just finally touch upon a point that when you look at the claims of the Black Lives Matter and you look at things like defund the police and you can expand that to same-sex marriage, pro-life, if you want to change those kinds of fundamental concepts, where should you do that? Should the Supreme Court be rendering decisions like Roe v. Wade or same-sex marriage as a constitutional right? Or should it be done at the local level? Well, 
the argument that we're making and that the federalists make is that if you want to change these things, then make that a political argument at the local and state levels and change local and state laws through legislative action. When the Supreme Court steps in and says across the board, there's some kind of right uh, called same-sex marriage that didn't exist before, and we're just going to write it and legislate it from the judicial bench, is the undoing of our constitutional system. Because these judges weren't elected, it doesn't get subject to the kind of debate and tension that the legislative process and the public policy discussion process brings to bear. It just decided arbitrarily and, in a word, tyrannically. The Supreme Court has no business stepping into these areas. You want to defund the police? Then convince your local city to defund the police and see what happens and see how quickly that changes. But if the federal government and especially the Supreme Court step in and say, from now on, this is going to be done irrespective of the fact that we have no authority under the Constitution to do so, it can't get undone except by another Supreme Court, which means that the system stays broken for years, if not decades, and that is a huge problem. Right. And that's, you know, the left knows that things like the abortion issue or the same-sex marriage, they couldn't get it through those processes. So this is how they had to do it. You know, they had to do it through the court. So, hey, uh, you know, next week, I'd say stand by, right? We plan on discussing how the election was stolen and how the left will continue to do so. You know, as, as we've been saying, you know, the civil war is heating up. And I'd ask all listeners to stay tuned. I don't think you'd want to you want to miss that one. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. We look forward to our our next discussion next week. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Please know that we will continue our relentless fight for faith and freedom. And may God bless you and may he continue to bless America. Thank you all.